You're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, where we take questions that was asked of us off of our Focus Compounding website and share it with you here on the podcast for free. To read more of our thoughts about investing, go to www.focusedcompounding.com and sign up using the word podcast for the promo code to get $10 off your monthly subscription price forever. Welcome back to the Focus Compounding website. I am Andrew Kuhn here for the podcast today, sitting alongside Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, well, we again, of course, we sincerely thank everybody for joining us today. Um, you know, the website's been a lot of fun for us, and we've met a lot of fun people from it, a lot of smart people from it. And, uh, you know, we're just so excited to uh, be able to connect with everybody and talk about investing. That is what we like, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That is. All right. Well, for today's podcast, um, we are going to, so a couple, what looks like it was, this was back in December. So we, uh, we've been lagging a little bit, mainly mm-hmm. on my part. Uh, but back in December, you tweeted out a call for questions where mm-hmm. anybody can uh, tweet a question to you about what they want or to be answered on the, on the podcast. Uh, we'll probably do this more frequently. So, you know, I think it's a lot yeah. of fun to connect with people. Um, so I'm just going to open up your Twitter and, and go directly to that and then just kind of read off some of the questions and we could talk about it and kind of see where it goes. Sure. Maybe we should give our Twitter handles. That, oh, that that is a good point. So my Twitter handle is just at focused compound, right? I think I la- ran out of characters. Okay. And then yours is at Jeff Gannon. Yes. So that that's very hard to remember, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just have to remember how to spell my name. Yeah, yeah. that is, that is G-E-O-F-F-G-A-N-N-O-N. Yep. Perfect. All righty. So the first question, which I did think was a pretty good question, comes from Liberty RPF. Uh, shout out to him. He's a pretty good Twitter uh, Twitter account. And his question was, what are, what are the worst mistakes of omission that you've both made during your investing careers? Thanks. Mm-hmm. I'll let you take that away. Okay. So omission versus commission. So omission means that we missed out on something. Yep. Um, so I would say the, the biggest one I would say in terms of how obvious it was and that I made the mistake rather than the size of how much upside I missed out on was DreamWorks Animation, mm-hmm. which was a publicly traded company. Um, they're the company behind the Shrek movies and uh, How to Train Your Dragon, Kung Fu Panda, those sorts of things. When was this? Um, was it 2013, 20, maybe five years ago? Something yeah. Like that. They, mm-hmm. they've, been pri- uh, they've been owned by Universal for a little while now. Um, anyway, the stock got down to probably half or less of the price that it was taken over at. So it's not a huge upside. It would have only been maybe 100% upside. But it um, was a really obvious one. I knew that it was really undervalued. I understood the company really well. Um, I'd say that the reason I missed out on that one was, uh, kind of the traditional numbers didn't work, Mm -hmm. um, PE and things like that. Um, but it was trading at a really good price versus the library of intellectual property that it owned. Like for instance, it had stopped making Shrek movies, but the last ones that it made, uh, had made a ton of money around the world. Mm -hmm. It still owns the rights to all that. Oh wow. So that all belongs to Universal now. Yeah. Um, so I'd say that was just one that sort of the usual numbers as a value investor, Focusing on those is what was a mistake there when I knew that if you could buy the entire company, it was a good price. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been much bigger ones that I missed out on in terms of upside. There was a company called Consolidated Graphics. What did they um, do? They were a bunch of print shops. Um, so it's very old media type stuff. Um, they uh, had they were sort of a roll-up in the industry of um, a bunch of different – it's a very fragmented industry, very small, um, doing all the printing locally uh, for – uh, a lot of different stuff, but but there's just a lot of printing that you still need done. Small businesses need it, but also fi- financial services uses it, a lot of things like that. And um, the company had some debt, 
but and this was during the financial crisis basically hmm. um uh but it was very cheap and easy to understand and had a good capital allocator um who was actually buying uh more of the stock i think the stock the company itself was buying back stock was it a smaller company or uh it, I guess as a stock, it was fairly small, but it was big in its industry. Yeah. Um, and I forget who bought that out. Maybe um, Donnelly. It might have ended up with Donnelly. Why didn't you? Why, what what kept you from investing in it? I, it was debt, and then it was yeah. the financial crisis. I would say, or right after the financial. So crisis. like a macro opinion in a way. In a way, I think that uh, there were a couple I missed out on. I would say for kind of a stupid reason, which is uh, the enterprise value. So when you added the market gap and the debt together, mm-hmm. I would buy the whole thing if it had all been equity. But some of it was debt. Yeah. And so I didn't want to buy it for that reason, probably. Um, that one is not so bad because uh, in terms of opportunity cost, the things that I were buying, that I was buying, um, ended up doing really well, too. Just a lot of things were cheap then. Um, to give you an idea, I think I bought Omnicom around the time, probably at eight or nine times earnings. Um, and that would have been fairly close to the same time that I'm talking about consolidated graphics. So um, there were other companies that were almost equally cheap yeah and omnicom it, probably did, did it it did well i'm sure right mm-hmm. yeah back yeah. in then yeah so there are other predictable businesses that were easy to understand and that were fairly cheap but i would say um that was one i missed out on yeah yeah cool uh, how about you what were big mistakes of omission for you well i think the biggest one for me would probably be missing out on 10 cent Okay. Um, I still think it, and the craziest thing is, and something that I kind of deal with often is I still think probably it's cheap, mm-hmm. which is crazy because it's like what, over $500 billion market cap now or some, somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, I did a lot of research on it and I thought a lot about it and I don't, I mean, I don't really even have a reason for why I did invest in it. I just don't think I had like cash available for what I had in my portfolio already. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that missing out on 10 cent, that kind of, and yeah. especially because they're still making, I mean, that company's just a compounding machine and i mean you could argue the wrong i mean you could like i say you could still argue it's still cheap today i would say yeah i mean there's a bunch of ones like that that i would say i've made a similar mistake with yeah but i wasn't ever that close to buying them uh, i wrote up about a company called copart um which does uh um well how do i explain what it I, is? I yeah no, <laughs> yeah. i always say i say copart's that company yeah. that you wait for to get cheap but mm-hmm. it just never gets cheap yeah. it just keeps going up yeah yeah and that was, I don't know, maybe six. They sell salvage cars, there. correct? Yeah. Yep. So they're they're Dallas they, company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they moved from Cal- Southern California mm-hmm. uh, to to um, Dallas, uh, and they, in fact, they were moving around the time that I uh, they they moved right around to Dallas or um, around the time that I was looking at the stock. Mm-hmm. But it was probably it might have had a PE of twenty five or something then. Yeah. So it was unlikely to be something that I would buy. And it's always traded kind of in that twenty mm-hmm. to twenty five. It has an area. incredibly wide moat. Yeah. Um the only risk that it has now is of course the risk of self driving cars reducing mm-hmm. the accidents. Because for people who don't know what this company does, um it really depends on the auctioning off of total yeah. cars. Yep. Exactly. But it has a huge moat because of the network effects of that. Yep. Um and the customers in a sense are really insurance companies. Um but it also has to have the actual yards so it has to actually own these basically junkyards around major cities in the U.S. So it really combines the best of local moats with the kind of worldwide um, network effects that you get. Mm-hmm. So it's an incredible company that way. You know what What always stuck out to me, and, and I don't know why I vividly remember this, but I remember they, they released a presentation talking about accident rates mm-hmm. and how they were going down in like the 90s, but then like early 2000s, they started to peak up again. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, they're still racing. And I mean, you kind of got to attribute that to like cell phones becoming 
yeah, prevalent Warren, and Warren distracted, about that. Yeah, yeah, distracted driving. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I did some research on Progressive, which is another one that did not buy. Um, but that's not one that I worry about missing out on. Actually, on the website Focus Compounding, you can find the report. Um, yeah, it is a report. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talked a little bit about self-driving cars and the risks there. The accident rates have been falling a lot, and Progressive had been um, constantly overestimating how many accidents there would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it hadn't been writing it as much business as it probably should have been. It was a little conservative. Um, but then what happened is you did have a spike up, especially in, in uh, deadly accidents, and that's clearly due to texting. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the moral of the story? Don't, <laughs> don't text and drive. Don't text and drive. Yeah. Um, and I would say also people should worry, though, about uh, long-term how self-driving cars will affect some businesses. Because yeah. it will be huge. I mean, it will eventually, self-driving cars do pose a risk of completely obsoleting things like Geico and Progressive and um, and even things like Copart because um, they depend on accident frequency. Yeah. And, but, and I remember Monish Pop, uh, Popri, Popri, I don't know, Fugazi, Fugazi, no, <laughs> Monish, he, uh, he, he kind of gave a talk about self-driving cars and his opinion of it. And um, he was saying, you know, where he, he, where he, I don't know if he actually invested in or, or whatnot, or he just kind of threw the idea out there. Look to invest in uh, tires. Right. That's not going to change no matter what kind of self-driving mm-hmm. cars or autonomous vehicles come out. Yeah. And this comes up with a lot of companies. Uh, I looked at AutoZone and a lot of people asked yeah. me about the risks of self-driving cars. That O'Reilly. Com- yeah. yeah that, those are complicated, though, because it gets into will the parts be more expensive that people buy? I mean, people don't realize this about AutoZone. The traffic um, to actually into those stores on a same store basis, I'm pretty sure from researching it, has been going down almost every year for at least 20 years. Wow. But the business has been getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it's consolidated, as the prices has gone up on the um, uh, on the parts that they sell, and so it, it does get complicated. We know what self-driving cars will do to certain businesses like Progressive and Geico. We think we know what it'll do in the case of Copart. Um, it gets really complicated with some of the other car companies and things sure. like that. Yeah. yeah, perfect. Well, thank you very much for asking that question. Um, next question, we're going to actually bundle this because a few people asked this question. Um, and it is, how do you determine your position size? Okay. Well, I determine my position size. Because uh, you, you just kind of, I mean, with NACO Industries, remember <laughs> you, you just went like shotgunned it right mm-hmm. away. And I remember it was so funny because you said that like you made a new 50% position <laughs> and the comments were like, wow, you, you just went right in for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the, the tweet backs yeah, to you. And I should have done it that morning. Apparently yeah. it's the, the lesson there. Um, yeah. Uh, well, 50% position is very unusual for me. I have, uh, but you are a very concentrated investor. Though. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've only, do, I think I've only done, fi- uh, I, that I recall right now, I've only gone for about a 50% position about three times. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I think I've been investing now, um, I don't know, 18 years, something like that, that I've been picking stocks. I did it in Activision, um, right after September 11th, actually. Wow. I had cash on hand. I already owned Activision, and I put the rest of my cash to work right after the market opened. Are you typically that. always fully invested? Or no. Yeah. I'd say that in the last, um, it's interesting, since t- in the last six years, on average, I've probably been 30% cash, if yeah. I did the math on mm-hmm. it, um, which, is, oh, which has been a big, um, the lesson there is that the stocks I've owned would have given a much better performance if I had just been 100% in, really? in them than, it, than I ended up with the cash. Um, do you hold, cash has been a drag. Do you hold cash just because of macro views or is it more so just, no. yeah. just not having another stock to buy? Yeah. Um, it happens for different reasons. Uh, sometimes a company you own gets taken over. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally you sell something. Um, but uh, like a, another example is I went, tried to go 50% of my portfolio into bank insurance. Um, 
and that was in maybe 2010, something like that. When that company went private, I ended up with a bunch of cash and didn't immediately deploy it. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, there was a company, IMS Health was taken over. I ended up maybe 30% in cash because of that. Because the day it was taken over, I didn't immediately have a new idea. Uh, but the basic idea is I try to own three to five stocks. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to own more than five stocks or less than three. That's, so how do you determine your position? Size? Yeah. So, I mean, me, I can't, it's hard for me to get excited about an idea if I can't see my, and like to do the due diligence mm -hmm. on it, if I can't see myself at least putting 10% into okay. it um but i'd say my position size is more so anywhere from that 10 to 20 percent i haven't i've definitely never tapped never into the the 50 percent. but i mean that doesn't necessarily mean that i wouldn't mm -hmm. um but i just i just really haven't done it but it's really for me i mean i just kind of think about um all my investments that they all kind of stand on their own their own two feet mm -hmm. um but my position size typically is just 10 to 20 percent, and really just depending on the type of business that it is and of course if it's like a screaming no-brainer type of investment. So, so what kind of investment would that be for you? Like Greenbrick? Would that be? Yeah. That so Greenbrick, Greenbrick back in this is I don't know two and a half years ago. I think after it, it traded below or to five dollars a share. I think net asset value at the time or book value of the company was maybe around eight or nine dollars a share. Mm -hmm. And uh, their CEO Jim Brickman, he was a home builder guy here in Dallas, and uh, especially both of us, we've talked about this, but both Jeff and myself being in the Dallas market, we've seen how it's sort of materialized and. Uh, they had a really good, um, really good uh, tailwind for that. Uh, they also had other um, pretty big money behind it. Uh, Daniel Loeb and and mm -hmm. um, and David Einhorn, and you know, you're buying a really good business that um, had a bunch of other uh, interesting things. Like they had a bunch of NOLs and everything that they're yeah. going to carry forward. And uh, I think it trades around eleven or twelve dollars today. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as big of a position, but yeah, it was it was a bigger position um, for me. But it definitely, but I mean, I would probably, I could never see myself putting 50% of my portfolio in a home builder, probably, but, right. but yeah, yeah. So, all right, cool. Um, last question of the day comes from the rational walk, the rational walk. He's a mm -hmm. good guy. Follow him on, on Twitter. If uh, you don't, he always puts out some pretty interesting stuff. Great book uh, reviews on the blog. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that is true. Um, and it says, how do you counter, and this is a good question for you since you've been writing for a lot longer okay. than I have. How do you counter the psychological <laughs> effects of writing about your investments publicly? Has writing added to or detracted from your personal investment performance? Okay. Well, it's added to it in terms of the people I get to meet. Yeah. Uh, not just in terms of the enjoyment from meeting different people, but actually those people do bring me ideas. I talk ideas with them. It, it's very useful that way. Uh, other than that, it mostly detracts really and it mo it's, it takes a psychological toll on you i would not want to be doing um like giving pr presentations like bill ackman about here's yeah. what i'm shorting and yeah. you know be public about that do you think that's do you think that and do you think that's actually hurt him yes yeah mm -hmm. i mean because he's kind of the only i mean i guess some fund managers are in like on cnbc or in the news mm -hmm. a couple times a year he was for a while he was just everywhere and talking about the specific positions and especially negative about something yeah i tried i try to very rarely say negative things um about any stocks uh write about it publicly do you, um, do you emails might be a little more uh candid <laughs> <laughs> do you find it do you find it tough though like for example like have you ever written about stock and then or you wake up one day and it's kind of getting hit or whatever and sure people yeah write and, to be, you and, and people write me like we were talking about naco uh, people there were people who wrote me and said i want to help you out let me tell you why you shouldn't uh, really that much into this stock and things like that yeah um, and controversial stocks. I owned uh, Barnes and Noble during the time when it was having a proxy battle, which it barely uh, was that with per Pershing as well. Uh, well, he owned 
Borders. Okay, and that's what this it was. Yeah, really out there theory <laughs> that Borders was gonna buy Barnes and Noble. Yeah, okay. What he really wanted was to unload his Borders before he ended up in Chapter Seven. Imagine I think that. it ended up yeah. actually in because um, it was the weaker competitor there. But um, uh, Ron Burkle was okay. the one who um, uh, was was uh, owned a lot of stock and um, came close to uh, defeating the Riggios in that. Uh, Proxy battle, but uh, it was very high profile, mm-hmm. and uh, especially in the industry, people who work in um, in publishing and in um, uh, book selling, things like that, is huge. So um, I got a lot of people talking to me about that. Weight Watchers was another huge one. Um, that stock went from the time that I bought in the 30s down to maybe four. That's one right. Time. Yeah. And now I. Th- think i saw it's at about 67 yeah. 60 something yeah and that's oprah thanks oprah uh, yeah <laughs> so that's another one um and so, i mean yeah and there are actually some people who when we did the newsletter and stuff said you know i'd i'd love to get a free sample in the newsletter or something i just want i'm afraid it's going to be an issue about weight watchers yeah <laughs> i you know things like that so yeah. it's very controversial stock and some people write about that it went from 30 something to four and that now it's to you know when'd you sell out of that 17 something like that yeah yeah it's uh, 17 something like that in the last year Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's on the blog somewhere that says the exact price i sold out at um so that was one that definitely would have been better off holding on to obviously yeah Um, i mean from my experience and i obviously haven't been writing as long as you have if anything i feel like it makes me like triple check my facts and like really feel convicted in it because obviously if you're going to put something out there and people are really going to take consideration to whatever it is you're writing about i mean that's that's pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's something to worry about that way where um, you may worry too much about, like, getting your facts exactly right, presenting it the right way to people. That's a bit intimidating because, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's always those. I haven't had too many issues, but there's keyboard heroes out there that like to. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone told me something about, like, that there was a mistake in um, the thing that I wrote about NACA, which uh-huh. is true. Uh, I, in fact, there's two mistakes in it. They're immaterial. They don't affect yeah. th- uh, anything about how I would make the decision. And they're both things that I wouldn't even have included or for myself mm-hmm. but i did it to for the post it. exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah and so you sometimes you spend too much time sometimes on things like that um present uh in in like i had a excel sheet up there from 1991 through tw- 2016 or something like that yeah. for for naco um i would look at that in general but we're talking back of the envelope figuring out the averages yeah. and stuff and it gets very technical when you're presenting it you're sort of doing your work yeah. for other people um you, you just need to be roughly right about those things it doesn't matter if i'm 25 yeah. right or wrong about naco obviously i would think it has to be very different the the value of the company from the price i bought at or mm. i wouldn't have put 50 percent in it sure right it's so interesting too because when it comes to investing like i mean we could talk about like behavioral finance or whatever but it's like if you go buy a house for example they don't know like a house's value right down to the last mm-hmm. decimal point if you buy a car they don't know the the car's value right down to the last decimal point yeah but whenever it comes like i, I see these models or whatever and i just think it's so interesting when they say naco industries is worth $40.42 per share, whatever, right. like right down to the last mm-hmm. decimal point. It's like, that's such a complicated business that ha- not complicated, but there's just so many moving yeah. parts. You know, how are you going to know what it's, you know, worth to the right, like right to the last penny, you know? So I just think that's what kind of why I think. And one thing I learned from you is, uh, it's kind of like keep things simple, but no simpler, you know, back of the envelope, use logic in your reasoning and kind of do that like that. Yeah. I mean, a big one for it, we did, we, uh, there are six reports about banks on the uh, website that you can find. Yeah. And um, 
we talked about the Fed funds rate a lot. Mm-hmm. And we sort of almost modeled out, I mean, I mean, we did it in a much rougher way than most people would, but we said, well, in three years, will it be 3% or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I would never do that myself, yeah. get that specific about it. We spent half probably of some issues there talking about the Fed funds rate. It, it matters to banks, but to me, I would look, okay, well, what if it is 3% five years from now? What if mm-hmm. it's 3% 10 years from now? If it works under all those scenarios well enough, I don't lose money and I might make a lot of money if it happens sooner then I'm going to buy the stock. Yeah. Um, but I got really much more specific in talking about it and why we talked about the Fed funds rate would be that level and things like that. It's just, uh, you spend a lot of time talking about and trying to prove certain things. Sure. That in general, you're saying, look, it was 0% when we picked these stocks. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more likely to be 3% in three to five years than it is negative 3%. Yeah. So, you know, and that's really the thing that matters is yeah. it's priced like 0% is normal. Sure. And that, doesn't take long to say. Yeah. But it, it you can spend thousands of words trying to prove that yeah, idea. Yeah, it's totally different. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's all for today. Uh, we really thank everybody for joining in. Feel free to go to the focuscompounding.com website and sign up using the podcast promo code to be able to get $10 off your monthly subscription price forever. Uh, we are going to do more Q&A sessions in the future, so we'll certainly tweet out about it. So feel free to follow us both on Twitter. My handle is at focuscompound and Mr. Jeff Gannon's is at Jeff Gannon. Thank you everybody for asking the questions and we'll see you in the next one.